we offer uh, a prayer to Krishna in the form of the Maha Mantra, the Krishna Mantra, which you may know. If you've heard it, you're welcome to chant. So this is a prayer to um, my teacher, Prabhupada. Namo Vishnupadaya Krishna Pristaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Paschachadeshakarine Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Now if you'd like to chant along you're welcome to Hare Krishna Krishna mantra is mentioned in some of the oldest 
Texas in the world. Hey, Sherry, you're back. Hi. Hi, good to see you. The, that particular mantra, that, that Krishna mantra, has um, great provenance. It has a, a very distinguished history. Um, unlike popular songs. By the way, if you'd prefer, there's a chair. Would you like a chair instead? You okay? All right. Um, it's, it's not a contemporary song. One of the things that we had to do, I, I have this checkered history. Some of you know it. Uh, I spent 13 years in Krishna ashrams. And back in the 19, early 1970s, when the Krishna mantra was first released as a song on the radio with Ringo Starr on the drums and George Harrison on bass, it uh, sent a bunch of us from the London Krishna temple out touring clubs. <laughs> so, so here's this ancient, very distinguished, you know, prayer to the Supreme, you know, boom, 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 boom. And uh, the first thing we'd always have to explain is actually it's not a pop tune. <laughs> it's an ancient prayer. <laughs> and this is in clubs. So, anyway, the Krishna mantra has this great um, history and legitimacy as a, a sound that is, it's called Nada Brahma, the, the Sanskrit term that describes sacred sound, spiritual sound, is Nada Brahma, uh, God in the form of sound. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That idea, that the name of God and God are not different. And sound is a very, very powerful thing. I'm doing a, a, um, a book right now, a biography of uh, a gentleman who survived concentration camp Auschwitz. Came to America in 1948 at the age of 22, or 23, with, I think he had $100. And over the course of the next half century, became one of the wealthiest, most successful men in American history. He was incarcerated in a concentration camp for almost two years and saw things that no human being should have to see. This mechanism was set in place, this National Socialist mechanism, this diabolically brilliant scheme for torturing and killing people, was set in motion by someone who simply created sound. Hitler never lifted a gun. The top honchos never lifted guns. They left that to their underlings. But by creating sound, you can build worlds and you can destroy worlds. Uh, there are stories in the, in the text. There's one uh, uh, quite wonderful story about uh, 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 Kardama Muni and uh, his wife Devahuti. Uh, Kardama Muni was um, a very renounced person. He uh, had no interest in the world. He was just happy to sit under a tree and practice his yoga and, and meditate. And um, uh, a delightful fellow who really wasn't cut out for family life. But the king, this is going back to ancient Vedic times now, thousands and thousands of years ago, the king was uh, enamored of having his wife marry, his daughter rather, marry well. And so he thought she would make a fine wife to this great rishi. Here's a great sage and, you know, produce wonderful children and so on. So Devahuti recognized in Kardama Muni this great soul and um, Kardama agreed to the marriage and uh, so <laughs> for the first while Devahuti just lived her husband's life. You know, he was a renunciant in the forest and so that's where they lived. And after a while she said, you know, I understand that you prefer God to me. I get that. I can understand that. But I'd like to have a family. And, and I think you owe me that. 
So Cartagena said, okay, so what, what's next? And um, Devuti says, well, this isn't exactly very conducive to, you know, a romance. If you want to get in the mood, we should have something beautiful and exciting and some place to go to that's going to be more, you know, exciting for us. So Kardama Muni, with his mystic abilities, he had practiced yoga for so long and he had such mystic strength. He, by the power of sound, he created an entire kingdom <laughs> with palaces and roadways and, and um, rivers and uh, goddesses came and took Devahuti and bathed her and anointed her. And Anyway, it turned out to be a great partnership and they had lots of kids. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what was that all about? Oh, the power of sound. Yes, the power of sound. <laughs> so, with the right sound, you can create magnificent things and you can destroy also. This building was created with sound. The, the person who decided that real estate was a good idea and who built on this plot of land probably did not pick up the box of cement and the bricks and the electrical wires and do it all personally. Created a sound. And by that sound was able to secure the funds, the, the financing, and hire the contractor and the suppliers. And everything was built from sound. The universe was built in the same way, from sound. Everything originates with sound. Sound is also the stimulant to consciousness. The, the Vedic philosophy, the Bhagavad Gita philosophy, is rather simple, actually, in its essence. What it says is that each of us is an eternal spark of God. We're beautiful, sublime, complete beings who share God's qualities in minute quantity. Because God is a blissful entity, we are also blissful creatures. By nature. Maybe not every day. But by nature. Our original nature is joyful. Because God is eternal, we are also eternal. Just as sparks from a fire share the same qualities as the fire, but in minute quantity. So we are also self-aware beings, but we are not infinitely self-aware the way Krishna or God is. Krishna is in the heart of all living beings. The Bhagavad Gita says, Ishwara sarvabhutanam hridesha arjunatishtati. Hridi means in the heart. There is an aspect of God that dwells in the heart, in your heart. That's not a, just a poetic sentiment. It's an actual reality. That aspect is called paramatma or antaryami, the witness within Imagine just for a moment if we actually understood this, if we had, could realize this one point of the Bhagavad Gita, <laughs> that we are walking around with God physically present in our heart. That's, that might change things. If we actually understood that we had access to that wellspring of all joy, knowledge, support, comfort, friendship, love, that's pretty beautiful. So because we share the same qualities of God in minute quantity, we also have a share of God's independence. That independence allows us to choose whether to stay within the original environment from which all souls originally emanate, or to come into this environment where we have an opportunity to exercise life separate and apart from Krishna in the material world. Not all souls come here. Some do. Those who come into this material environment are called nitya-badha souls. That is to say that we've been here for so long that it's like nitya. It's like eternal. It feels that way. We've been here for so long you can't trace back the moment when the soul entered the material world. The longer you stay in this world 
through repeated births and deaths, the more that original knowledge of ourselves becomes covered over. It's like a mirror that becomes covered with dust just by sitting there, just in the atmosphere. Dust is everywhere and it settles and covers that mirror. The chanting of mantras, and in particular the Krishna mantra, is like a cleansing away of the dust that covers that mirror. When the dust is cleared away, it can reflect light perfectly. Just as when the heart is purified through the chanting of this Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, it can reflect God. You become the reflection of God in the world. And we certainly have need of that. I mean, look what's happened just yesterday the tragedy up in Boston. It's, it's almost inevitable that we would have to talk about that, at least for a little bit. And of course, we think first of all of the uh, victims of terrorism and crime of all sorts. My mind also goes to the perpetrators, maybe because I teach Holocaust studies I think a lot about the perpetrators. I try to understand what makes them do what they do. How are people capable of performing such um, disastrously harmful crimes? What, what could possibly motivate someone to, to act that way? Well, we know for one thing that there is simply mental illness, chemical imbalances, um, psychic disturbances, incomplete circuitry, trauma that can affect brain functions to such a tragic extent that people lose empathy. They lose their ability to feel what someone else must be feeling. That empathic ability is in the studies of the operators of Hitler's camps, there is a fair amount of evidence that there was a lack of empathy, an inability to feel what someone else is experiencing. The bottom line for me is, what's the company that they were keeping? Everything pretty much comes down to sangha or, or company, good company and bad company. Um, this is come up a lot lately. Um, the wrong company becomes the influence of the catalyst for tragedy in life. And good company can be the difference between night and day. So I actually, actually what I wanted to talk about was good company. <laughs> That was a kind of a sneaky way of coming around to, to the subject that we should talk about. The Bhagavad Gita is based on the idea that we are the product of the company we keep our values, our behavior, the choices we make and who to partner with and what kind of a career to pursue. Everything stems from the influence of other people around us starting in childhood. So even more important than the chanting is the company you keep. The chanting can reawaken that consciousness. It's the company you keep that will keep it strong. So should we chant Hare Krishna and have a daily spiritual program? Yes, of course. But even more important, watch out for the company you keep. There's a saying in French, Dites-moi qui sont vos amis, je vous dirai qui vous êtes. Tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you about yourself. Which is why most yogis in history don't live in cities. They've always gone off to the forest. They don't want to be in bad company. 
They'd rather be on their own in the mountains and in the caves. So we're here in New York. What does that say about us? Um, but you can take this experience and transform it. This can actually become... The, New York is the Himalayas of the 21st century. This is the place where you can actually make your strongest spiritual advancement. Now, why is that? Why would New York be a really good place to make spiritual advancement? I mean, how, how can you possibly justify a claim like that? It's more challenging. It's more challenging? Okay. Certainly, there's, certainly it's challenging. It tests, tests you all the time. It'll test the, the extent of your command of your spiritual knowledge. You know, if, if life is just a vacation and you've, there's nothing challenging you, how do you know whether you've actually learned something. There's no opportunity to exercise it, or very little opportunity. Here, every second, you have an opportunity to exercise your spiritual knowledge, and you have to. There's no standing still in New York. You're either going up or you're going down. There's no treading water here. So that's one good reason. What's another good reason why New York is a great place to practice yoga and advance spiritual? Everything is here. All right, now explain what you mean, because I can, that can be taken in different ways. Well, I would think that you have, you have so many people that know so much, that have, that have so many programs that you can attend to, that, have, that whatever you're into, it's going to be available. Okay, well, that's certainly true. Um, I think you were mentioning earlier that you've been to Buddhist gatherings, and you have... Yeah, I've been Yeah. Well, New York has, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have any day of the week, kirtans and classes and sanghas and dharma talks and lectures and, yeah, Josh. Um, for you personally, like, how did you manage to, uh, I don't know, qualify the stuff that is the real deal from the Waterdale stuff? Uh, you, you mean, how do you pick in New York? Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to pick from, so much to choose from. Well, I'm just like, I come from that uh, school of thought, which uh, reminds me of Grand National Story, and he would get us up on Tai Chi, because uh, he knows that I don't study under anybody, and he simply says, trace everything back to its original bloodline, because before it ever became public, those guys were doing it, and now they were doing it, Yeah. So, in that context, right. New York, what would you think? <laughs> well, you know, New York is such a, a, a hub, it's such a magnet, that you get the Grand Masters coming to New York. You know, years ago, you had to trek up the mountain, sometimes for weeks, before you could get to the ashram of a qualified teacher, a renowned teacher, didn't set up shop, you know, in Midtown. You had to really prove your sincerity for receiving instruction by going and finding them out. You know, and sometimes through treacherous uh, circumstances and conditions to get to these remote places. The world is much more of a global village now, for one. And the need is so great that the truly great teachers eventually make it to New York. <laughs> because the need is greatest. They go where the need is greatest. You know, it's like doctors without borders or something. You know, you, you go to where the need is greatest. So, now as to your question, if there's such a selection, if there's such a variety, how to know? The first qualification is the same thing we've been talking about, it's sound, it's the quality of the sound. Listen very, very carefully to what someone says not just the words they say, but how they say it. Are you perceiving a lot of ego in it? Are you perceiving a lot of attention focused on me? Well, that's one indication that maybe this someone has some distance to go yet in his own or her own spiritual understanding. Because true spiritual teachings are offered without ego. That's actually... The verse that we have here today 
How's that for a segue right to Yay. the verse? All right, let's chant the verse. This is, um, if you have your Bhagavad Gita's, if you'd open, please, to page uh, 206. Um, this is the 19th verse of chapter 4 in the Bhagavad Gita. Before we recite a verse of the Gita, we start with an invocation. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. And we repeat that together three times. So would you kindly repeat with me? Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya That invocation is another way of acknowledging that this is not mundane education, mundane knowledge. This is spiritual knowledge, it's sacred knowledge, and before reciting a text from a sacred book, there's a prayer that you offer, there's an acknowledgement that we're entering into sacred space. So that's what that invocation is for. It's, for example, the same reason why people of deep faith will first say a prayer before they eat a meal. If you're having a meal here in Jiva Mukti Cafe, you'll very often see someone before they take their, you know, Maharani dal soup or whatever it is, they will close their eyes and they'll say a prayer. There's an acknowledgement that this is not just food. I'm not filling my belly with food. I'm honoring God's mercy. I'm honoring prasadam. It's a very, very different way to live your life when everything is an opportunity an act of sanctification. It's quite a beautiful thing. So we've done that now, and we can recite this verse from the Bhagavad Gita. Um, I'll chant one line, and then we can chant it together responsibly. Okay, so this is at the bottom of page 206, chapter 4, verse 19. Yasya sarve samaramba. Now let's try that together. Yasya sarve samaramba Kama sankalpa varjita Karma sankalpa varjita Gyanagni dagda karmanam Gyanagni dagda karmanam Tammahu panditam buddha Tamahu Panditam Buddha Yasya Sarve Samaramba Yasya Sarve Samaramba Kama Sankalpa Varjita Kama Sankalpa Varjita Gyanagni Dagda Karvanam Gyanagni Dagda Karvanam Tamahu Panditam Buddha. Tamahu Panditam Buddha. Anyone care to try? <laughs> I'm seeing this. Yeah, now if it might be a different edition of the Gita. It's text 19 of chapter 4. Ah, okay. Alright. So, anyone? Okay, well, then. Did, did, huh? Did she? I saw her little hand go up. Okay. <laughs> That's close. Yasya Sarve Samaramba. Kama Sankalpa Varjita. Gyanagni Dagda Karmanam Tamahu Panditam Buddha Excellent. Well done. Leela, right? Thank you. Okay, translation. One is understood to be in full knowledge whose every endeavor is devoid of desire for sense gratification. He is said by sages to be a worker for whom the reactions of work have been burned up by the fire of perfect knowledge. 
I'll read that again. One is understood to be in full knowledge whose every endeavor is devoid of desire for sense gratification. The word in Sanskrit is kama. And kama refers not just to the obvious kinds of sense indulgences, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Kama also refers to essentially anything that is meant for your own material gratification, uh, separate, apart, and disconnected from a relationship with God. So anything that's undertaken, it could be scientific research, can be kama if it's disconnected from that desire to uncover the greater mystery and to honor that greater mystery of the universe. If it's done because you want the glory, for example, that's kama. Uh, one is understood to be in full knowledge whose every endeavor is devoid of desire for sense gratification, kama. He is said by sages to be a worker for whom the reactions of work have been burned up by the fire of perfect knowledge. The word, the word is agnidagda. Knowledge is compared to a fire that consumes the hurtful consequences of what we do. Another example might be that the sun is able to dry up an obnoxious place, like if there's a, a puddle of urine or if there's some spill, a garbage spill of some kind. The sun will purify that. It'll dry it up and purify it, make it antiseptic. Our life is like that. We're kind of contaminated by actions that have been formed not only in this life, but in many lives. Those consequences to hurtful behavior, uh, we're carrying that around with us. the way to remove oneself from that toxic arena where things happen as a consequence of past activities is by moving into an arena of activity that does not carry any consequence. What do we mean by that? All right, getting, let's get practical. If you've been sick, if you've gotten into legal Difficulty. If you've had relationship problems, if there's been tragedy, if there's been um, insomnia, if any of the places or any of the impediments to a contented, fulfilled life that occur have immediate causes and remote causes. The immediate cause might be, in some instances, some genetic problem. If, if, if you don't see, well, I need glasses. I remember the first time I had to wear glasses. It was a real shock. I went into the optometrist to have a checkup. The very, very lovely lady said to me, excuse me, Mr. Green, I have to just tell you something. You need glasses. I think she said it more or less like that. I'm sorry to tell you this. You need glasses. Really? Yes. And it's only going to get worse. It was a very encouraging session. Um, but I know what she means now because I've had to have the prescription corrected about once a year, every once every year or two years. My eyes, you know, are deteriorating. <laughs> Things deteriorate in this world, right? So some... Immediate causes can be genetic. Some immediate causes can be some trauma that you experienced in childhood. Poor parenting, for example, can do that. Uh, you can walk out on the street and have an accident. Our, our good friend Nick was riding his bike to, I don't know if he was coming to Bhagavad Gita, but car sideswiped him and he was laid up for weeks, you know, with a cast on his leg. Things happen. So there are the immediate causes that you can track. Then there are the remote causes that you can't track. 
Why is it, for example, that two people born under very similar circumstances, they could be, even be twins in the same family, one goes on to a fine career, the other one becomes criminal. I mean, why is it that there are these distinctions when the immediate causes seem to not be the reason for that outcome? How many people have been privileged by loving parents, good education? All the circumstances seem perfect to have a really fulfilled life, and yet they end up in some other situation. My spiritual master had several children before he became a renunciate, the sannyasi, and one of his sons became a homeless person. Now here's, here's the child of an elevated spiritual teacher who became a homeless person. I talked to Prabhupada about it one time. I said, what, what happened? He said, well, <laughs> he, he went off to college. And when he came back from college, he went like this with his finger. He wasn't well in his head. Now, I learned later on that what happened in college is that he met a girl and things didn't go the right way. And it triggered something in his brain that just deteriorated more and more. And for a while, I asked him, what did you do? He said, well, in Calcutta in those days, we're talking the early years of the 20th century, 1920 or something like that. He says, in those days, the hospital in Calcutta had two wings. One was for Indians, and the other was a more expensive wing for the British, uh, you know, the Raj, the people who had come the, the administrators of the British colonies. And he said, I paid a lot of money to send my son to see a psychiatrist in the British wing of the hospital. And for a while, he said, it helped. You know, he was better for a while, but then one day he went away and I never saw him again. So this, and this is the child of an extraordinarily elevated, God-realized soul. So, even under the best of circumstances, immediate causes are no guarantee of outcome. You just can't judge by that. There are other factors at work. Now, those are remote causes. Those are causes that you can't trace empirically because there's very little evidence of what happened in previous lives, which is why in these sessions, personally, my own preference is to not talk about previous lives. I find them particularly irrelevant. I don't particularly find them useful. You may have been the Queen of Sheba. You may have been Napoleon. It doesn't really help us to even know that. Right? The life you can access is this life. This is the one we have to deal with. So these concepts are actually rather elementary that one should work in an unselfish way, that one should put oneself in an environment of devotion where every act is sanctified. These are, any civilized person would live like this. Any civilized person would live in a gentlemanly way, doing the least amount of possible harm to others, uh, charitable, clean, these are, these are basic rules. We're living in such a sad time. This age is called the age of Kali. It's the worst of the four ages in the Vedic cycle of time. And this is a terribly tragic age. Um, so when we see things like what happened in Boston, we can attribute it to all kinds of things. But I, when it drills down to is the company you keep the company you keep. Yeah. Um, what about the individuals that emerge from the worst of the company? To go on and do great things? Oh, no. Is that what you mean? Because there are some people that you put them in the worst of company and that kind of... they love it because it's because of that company that they can have so much contrast and then maybe Interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Um, sometimes we choose to frequent people or places 
that uh, we know aren't particularly healthy for us, but it's offering some kind of gratification. It's offering some kind of feedback that we want. Now, what might that feedback be? This is where we get into a little bit more of a complicated discussion about the mind and how the mind operates. This came up in discussion, actually, recently. When you find yourself threatened, the body kicks into a self-preservation mode. Those instincts are quite useful. I mean, if there's a car coming at you, you don't want to start meditating. Get out of the way. Right? That's a very healthy instinct. But sometimes, when we enter into spiritual life, that same feeling of my life is being threatened can arise. So this is actually a discussion that's come up several times lately. What the Bhagavad Gita is teaching is extraordinarily revolutionary. It's radical. It's radical philosophy. This is not for the faint of heart. Bhagavad Gita is not for lightweights. This is the real deal. The Bhagavad Gita is so powerful. This knowledge, first of all, it's been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's proven itself over the test of time. And some of the greatest thinkers in history have all been inspired by the Bhagavad Gita. This is powerful sound vibration captured in these pages. When we confront that kind of a radical picture of how our life might be different, that's when the brain kicks into that preservation mode and says, wait a minute, the life that I know, operative phrase, the life that I know, the life I identify with, is being threatened. What must I now do to preserve myself, to protect myself? Get away from the thing that is threatening me. Now, if the thing that is threatening you is your spiritual practice, you see where I'm going with this? That's why people fall away from yoga. People don't fall away from yoga because they become bored. They fall away from yoga because the implications of yoga have started to become clear to them, which is that if I'm really going to do this, it's going to mean some radical changes in how I'm living my life. That's threatening to the life that I've worked so hard to build. Even if it's a, a sad life, a, 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 a tragic life, a hurtful life, a painful life, sometimes we're more comfortable with pains we know than pains we don't know. So even that painful life will protect it. And this is all happening subconsciously. This isn't something that we're consciously thinking about. The brain is kicking into that self-preservation mode. It's releasing hormones into the bloodstream. And all that you know is, you know what? I think i got to move away from this. This philosophy is telling me that my life is in jeopardy. I have to move away from this philosophy. So when you find yourself in that kind of a position where you've lost your enthusiasm for your yoga practice, you've lost your gumption for spiritual practices. You're, you're not feeling that energy of commitment to your daily chanting or to following the straight and narrow path when it comes to things like staying away from drugs and alcohol or, or, or keeping your life clean. When you find that your resistance to that is breaking down, that's when the rational thinking kicks in that this is actually wrong for me. What, what happens when you don't want to do something? What's the first thing you do when you don't want to do something? Huh? You rationalize it. <laughs> you transfer the pure instincts of the heart to the rational instincts of the head. And you find all kinds of reasons for not doing the very thing that you should do. 
That's Arjuna's situation. Why is Krishna having to go through all these ABCs? This is all ABC stuff here in chapter 4. Stay away from harmful behavior. Do good deeds. You know, you know get a spiritual master that's coming up later in this chapter. Yeah, this, is, this is elementary stuff here. And Arjuna is a very, very advanced person. If Krishna is taking the first several chapters to teach, to reteach Arjuna the basics, it's because Arjuna has taken this defensive, self-preservational, rationalizing of why he shouldn't do what he needs to do by giving all of these arguments, all of this language to Krishna. So Krishna is rebutting that one by one. Is that a handout? Okay, the story behind the Bhagavad Gita, in essence, is that we have a warrior, Arjuna. He's military. He's on the battlefield where the enemy on the opposite side might, in contemporary language, be described as terrorists. They had usurped the throne. They were murderers, that's for certain. And they did not have the interests of the population at heart. They were thoroughly unqualified to be rulers and had to be brought down. As a member of the military class, Arjuna's duty was to fight. But he was also a devotee, a Krishna devotee, and had a very soft, good heart. Because he had a good heart, when he looked across the battlefield, and saw people he knew there, even some family, he had cousins on the other side, he refused to fight. He got so scared of killing people he knew, people he loved, that he essentially became catatonic, had a meltdown. He had a, his, his face was sweating, he, his hands were sweating, couldn't hold his bow and arrows, he, he got dizzy, he had to sit down, couldn't even remember his name. And then he starts spouting all of these reasons for not fighting. The scriptures say we shouldn't do harm. If we kill these people, then there'll be nobody to run the kingdom. All kinds of reasons. I, even if I win, I won't be able to enjoy it because I'll be living with the memory of what I did. <laughs> Every possible argument for not doing what he needed to do. So the entire Bhagavad Gita is 700 verses where Krishna speaks the essence of all Vedic wisdom, all ancient Indian spiritual wisdom, to Arjuna. And the result is that Arjuna rallies his strength, regains his self-confidence, picks up his weapons, and enters into battle, and is ultimately, ultimately victorious. Yeah. This book is a portion of the much larger story that I just described for you. That larger story is called the Mahabharata. And within one section of the Mahabharata, we find this dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna. That's the Bhagavad Gita. And also, can you talk about how, um, because he was born into this path, you know, that was Well, we all have a, let's, 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 instead of calling it duty or, let's say skill sets, aptitudes, right? Each of us has a particular calling which will make us most happy. That's actually the job that we have is to find the work that will fulfill us. It's so sad seeing people who have to go to offices that they don't want to go to, you know, and commuting hours every day and working with people they really don't like. You know, it's a very, very sad state of affairs. And I know that my teacher was so concerned about it, he was focused on building farm communities. He wanted to, to make alternatives where people could go and they wouldn't have to it's called Ugra Karma. The Sanskrit is Ugra Karma, means hellish work. Hellish work. 
Earn money so you can pay your bills, so that you can go earn money to pay more bills. So, the Vedic scheme, the Vedic social system, provides employment for each man and woman according to his or her particular aptitudes, vocational skills, and psychological profile. Why put someone who's quite well equipped to be um, a farmer or uh, a manual laborer or an artist, someone who works well with creative ideas and works well with his or her hands, why oblige that person to become an academic? They won't be happy. They won't do it particularly well. Which is why I don't win a lot of friends by saying this, but I teach in a university. I do not believe that every child should be made to go to a university and have a college education. I just don't believe it. I'm dealing with kids, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. They should be allowed to go and do something that's going to make them happy. They're failing miserably. They don't have any aptitude for this. But we've, you know, we're, we're so topsy-turvy in, in our culture. You know, it's like education at all costs. It's like preserving life at all costs. It's the same thing. We're, we're, because we don't understand the eternality of the soul, we have this idea that we're going to preserve life no matter what it costs, including the quality of life of the person whose life we're trying to save. And we'll spend hundreds and thousands of dollars doing it, drive that person's poor family into the poorhouse, make them paupers. Why? So that this person can be artificially kept alive? That is not the Hippocratic Oath. So things are kind of upside down in this culture, right? Including forcing people who shouldn't have to go to college to go to college. So anyway, that's just me. Yes, you have lots of questions. Let me see if anyone else has any questions. Anyone else have a question or a comment to make? Okay, Josh, what's on? What's on your mind? I was wondering when you said the part about feeling, um, if what we say can easily be backwards engineered and rationalized because it comes from an emotional perspective. Oh yeah, you bet it is. And if emotional perspective comes and can be manipulated from NLP, hypnosis, or suggestion, sure. what does a person trust? <laughs> How do you know which part of your brain to trust? Oh, <laughs> That's <yeah>. a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Therefore, keep good company. Therefore, sadhu sangha. The answer is you, you probably won't be able to figure it out on your own. Get a circle of good friends. That's why it, it, it comes back to this so many times. It is critically important that you find a circle of people whom you can trust, who are on the path with you, who can share with you their realizations and their mistakes. This is important, people, friends. Hear this, hear this out. The single greatest thing that you can get by coming to this yoga studio is not the asana classes. It's good company. The asana classes are icing on the cake. That's icing on the cake. If you come here and find the kind of company where you can... Share the things that are challenging you on your spiritual path. You couldn't do any better to enhance your yoga practice than that. It really comes down to that. It comes down to, to, to good company. And that's why having these places is so important. Why bother? Why bother having to generate the revenues and pay the bills and the upkeep. You have any idea what a headache it is maintaining Jiva Mukti Yoga School? It's so many problems of it, finding the right administrative staff and outfitting the kitchen and you know the upkeep and the insurance and all that. It's a headache. Why do it? So that people can come together and have good company. It's the only real reason. 
very personal statement here, but um, I'll just go with it because it's kind of the company I keep. Um, my roommate um, is my almost my brother. I mean, he's so very close to me, but um, he's a Satanist, and uh, so it's a very much a different kind of perspective than my own perspective. I'm kind of looking at the other side of things, and I'm living with Satanists in a way, and. Um, it always, you know, I just try to, I, I think that even though it, at some times I realize that it, it might it might be a trouble for me, for me, um, and this is kind of a, a really putting myself into a situation of, of darkness. Mm -hmm. um, although within this Satanism, there's still, you know, there's a lot of purity of heart. There's a lot of things that I could, could see that would be positive. So I mm -hmm. try to take those things and use them as inspiration for myself. But at times I wonder, to what point can you can you take something like that? And it's sometimes difficult to know when when the good company you keep. Sometimes you push yourself, like you've been saying. You know, you, you run into your, your good brother, your loved soul mate, and he's chosen a different path than your own. Yeah. And then you kind of realize that at some point you have to split. Mm-hmm. You care a lot about this friend. That's the hard part. Is when you care deeply for someone and you feel that you can't help them. Well, you try to kind of be yourself and you know, hope that you know, mm -hmm. at some point, you know, there's conversations that we have. You know, but clearly that those paths are just splitting against. Well, I mean, you're bringing it up for a reason, so I, I'm 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 tempted to just respond with a question. <clears throat> do you find that w what is it about that situation that you're in that prompts you to ask about it? I mean, are you, are you saying that you find yourself um, either tempted to follow his path or that you're sad to see him following a path that you don't agree with? Or? No, I always find it positive, for example... In his path, there's so much honesty, mm -hmm. so it's something that he truly, honestly believes in. Right. So I try to take the positives. Yeah. Um, as long as it's not influencing you in the wrong way, you know, why give up a working uh, uh, apartment uh, partnership? But only you can be the judge of that. If if you're able to pick the good and leave the bad aside, as you're saying, then it sounds like you've got it in hand, and that sounds fine. It's sometimes challenging, that's all. Yeah. Well, it's like family. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 It's like, yeah, it's like, what are you going to do, you know? That's what it is. Just, you know, it's divorce so, your cousins a, and brothers and sisters. It's a dramatic situation to be yeah. in, and to, to really come to terms with, you know, right. that choice. Right. Not really want to kind of. Right. What am I going to do? Okay. All right. Well, right, now, okay. Here's the politically correct answer. The politically correct answer is be the example, right? So that he'll see what you're doing and be attracted to want to know more about that. That's the politically correct answer. Why do I say politically correct answer? Because there's a higher place which I am not at which says you love people for who they are, not who they might be someday when they see the light the way you see the light. Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult. It's a lot easier just to take the politically correct path. You know, I'll be a good example and then they'll see the way. You know, the harder way is no, love them now. And, and um, that's fine as long as it's not bringing you down. When you, when you try to reach out and help someone, but you end up going down, then you're not doing them any good, and you're sure as heck not doing yourself any good. So you've really got a clear, have to have a clear picture of where you are spiritually. Where, what, what is your level on the spiritual path? What is safe for you to do? And what is dangerous for you to do? And don't take more dangerous steps than necessary. Don't, don't endanger your own spiritual life.
And that's, you know, the hard truth of it, you know, is that you can't allow anyone, whether it's a roommate or a family or a partner or anybody, sometimes even a teacher, sometimes even a teacher, you cannot allow anyone to interfere with your spiritual life or impact that spiritual life in a, in a hurtful or negative way. And that is your God-given prerogative to do that. That's not just good sense. That is a duty and it is God-given. That's real self-preservation. That's real self-preservation. Is when you protect like your spiritual life. I've kind of been there on a pattern in my life. Mm. Um, there, like you said, there was Again, this, this kind of borders on pop psychology, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but at a certain point, it's, uh, it's very useful to ask yourself, why am I in this relationship? What is it? <laughs> it's like that old, old Woody Allen joke about the guy walking down the street and he meets his psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist says, You're, you told me last time about your girlfriend who thinks she's a chicken, and I thought you were going to bring her to see me. And the guy says, well, I was, but then I changed my mind. And the psychiatrist says, oh, why? And the guy says, well, I need the eggs. <laughs> Relationships can be bizarre, hurtful, destructive, but they're obviously giving us something. There's something coming out of it that compels us to perpetuate that relationship. Now, this is not necessarily your situation. Ivan, is that right? Yeah. It's not necessarily your situation. But we're complicated creatures, we human beings. We're very complicated creatures. And usually, the reason you think you're doing something is not the reason you're doing it. <laughs> That's when your yoga comes in useful. Take a deep breath, chant Hare Krishna, and then go inside and with a heartfelt prayer, ask what's really going on here. That saved my marriage. I'll be up right up front with you about it. That inner journey absolutely saved my marriage. I was sure that this is going to end. It is over and done. Bye-bye. And then I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What would my spiritual master want me to do? And he would want me to try to preserve this. So let me go inside and figure out, what am I doing wrong here? That kind of internal asking for help is very powerful. It's very, very powerful. Because what it says is, aha, I may be fooling myself. That's a very, very clearing, clarifying moment right there. If you can come to that place, this will help answer your question. If you can come to that place of actually saying to yourself, I think maybe I'm fooling myself. That is a really good place to be. That's a really healthy place. Because it's acknowledging that subconsciously, my brain, you know, the, the brain is the intermediary between the mind and the body. Okay? The brain is the mechanism by which the mental gyrations and fabrications that we come up with manifest in our life externally, physically. Okay? So what is the first rule of yoga? Control your mind. What's the 
First rule of yoga, control your mind. So why? You can come to that point of understanding that maybe, maybe what's happening is that my mind has been the one leading this dialogue. Let me check on that. Now you're going to make some real spiritual progress. Now you're, now you're on the right track. So take control of your mind. You be the one to guide the, the inner dialogue. Ask yourself whether you're kidding yourself or not. Keep good company. Chant Hare Krishna. Ta-da! There you go. All right. You, is, are you, there's no RT tonight, right? Next week we start RT up again. And I believe Julie is assisting. Uh-huh. It's postponed, so now we're back in the RT. Okay. All right. Julie's going to assist, right? This, this Julie? Is that what I'm looking at? Yes, that's Oh, Okay. She wanted, sure. yeah. you wanted to learn RT and you wanted to learn first by assisting and then yeah, doing so it. Yes, okay, you want to create memory. Alright, so we'll have RT next week. And then we yeah. have one announcement. Um, six-hour care time is a Saturday and Dharna Dharaswami is going to be there for Is that the Bhakti Center? Yeah. Okay. So six-hour care time. What time does that start? From 4 to 10. Prasad at 8. And his uh, Dharana Dharaswami, who is a very wonderful, magical yeah. person, is going to be Another, 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 another. Yeah, enlivening Saturday. Enlivening Saturday. Right, very good. Actually, I, 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 I,